Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think of a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we talk about things that are film-related, and they're fun. With me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How are you? I am not bad. I I have adopted a dog. Yay! As we as we were discussing, which has been a little stressful, little emotional, you know, and everything. I think things are calming down. She's an absolute sweetheart and a, a very strong doggy. <laughs> Aww. She's just like a bundle of muscle. Um, tell everyone what her name is. Her name is Budica. Uh, she, she is named after the Celtic warrior princess who sacked Roman London. Uh, so I I felt like it was an appropriate name and she, she actually seems to be learning it already, which I am pleased with. Mm. Uh, she's a, she's at least pricking her ears up every time I say it. So I'm happy about that. Cute. Uh, so today on the Citizen Day podcast, we are going to talk about German expressionism which often is only referred to as expressionism because by default, all expressionism is German. That's not true. But, uh, <laughs> well, the Germans are very expressive. The, well, the Germans, the Germans <laughs> did, yes, that's true. The Germans did uh, technically invent it. It's like as a movement, it did originate in Germany. So that's usually why people say, you know, when they say expressionism, what you're referring to is German expressionism. Um, and, and in film, it also, it also primarily originated in Germany because it was an art form that then, uh, was adapted eventually to theater and, and then eventually to the screen, partially because artists and, um, theater directors and theater performers and set designers moved towards cinema, obviously. And, uh, and so it began to develop out of that. So to start off with, I'm just gonna I'm gonna quiz Karen. Oh, no. uh, <laughs> I'm just gonna ask Karen, Karen, what do you think German expressionism is, or what what do you like think of when you think of German expressionism? Um, so basically, I eh, that's a good question. I'm not sure how to answer it, but I tend to equate it or or think of like in terms of film, it's things that are kind of um not abstract that's not the right word but um like I'm trying to think like that's not quite the right word either like I was thinking ostentatious but it's like um exaggerated I guess like yeah. exaggerated um sets and exaggerated action and exaggerated stories and that kind of thing yeah, no, definitely. I, I think that, and I, I also think that you can say, you could probably say abstract, at least in terms of, um, particularly when you're talking about the art itself mm-hmm. uh, and the art that is then applied to cinema is that there is an abstraction there that it's not, 
it's not realism. It's not trying to show the reality of scenery or of people or anything like that. It's showing them, like you're saying, in this exaggerated format. Yeah. Um, yeah. So expressionism, uh, as I said, it was a, it was initially a, um, a painting uh, and a literature movement that then moved into theater. And, and essentially the, the idea behind expressionism uh, is that it's presenting the world from a subjective perspective and usually a, a somewhat sick or psychological uh, uh, perspective. So I, the way that I like to put it is, is just saying it makes the internal external. Yeah. So what it's trying to do is approximate, right, the psychological and emotional experiences of the characters uh, in, in film or in theater uh, or, you know, the human psyche in, in something more like painting or poetry. Uh, so German Expressionism as, as a film movement uh, was one of those things that kind of began to develop uh, before the First World War in Germany. And, and then became very, very popular in the 1920s and during the Weimar Republic in, in Germany. And the Weimar Republic, just in case anybody isn't aware, the Weimar Republic runs from about 1918, so the end of World War I, uh, to about 1933, which is the beginning of the, uh, the, the rise of the Nazis and the, the Hitler taking power. So it's, that, it's this little period in, in German history where there's a lot of innovation. There was also a lot of privation because of the war and because of the results uh, of the peace in Germany. So there was, and there's this burgeoning of the artistic community. There, was a, there were a lot of major social and cultural movements. Um, and so in some ways, it was a very positive time period for Germany. And it was also obviously a very negative one because it, underneath all of it, was this developing nationalism uh, and an obsession and interest in death that was eventually going to culminate in, in the rise of the National Socialists. What's interesting about the time period, because I was doing some research on this and, and trying to understand the early German um, film industry and what was mm -hmm. happening there, because as we talked about a few weeks ago, or I don't even know how long ago it was now, but like as the film industry was was growing around the world, there wasn't one country that dominated like there is now. Mm -hmm. um, and the United States didn't just like it wasn't that everybody looked to America as the standard for film. It was every country was developing its own industry, developing its own voices. And what's interesting about what happened in Germany was that after World War One, the government basically like nationalized all the film studios. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's where you get this kind of not standardized, but sort of like you, I mean, what you're going into right now with the nationalism, like it just kind of developed sort of this look and feel of like, this is what German film is made it something that you can define and, and describe, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, a number of people have remarked on the fact that some of the development of the German film industry, and I, and I would say that this is probably true for most of the film industries in Europe and, and even in the United States in this period, uh, is that first of all, you've got all of these new things being tried, new innovations, but because of the war, there was a great deal of isolation. Mm -hmm. uh, and Germany in particular, being you know, the loser, as it were, of, of World War I, um, was very, very 
socially, culturally, geographically isolated from the from the rest of Europe and from the United States. But what happens during um, so so they begin essentially developing their own national cinema. Uh, this is the foundation of Ufa, which is uh, one of the the major German film studio, uh, and it, it does become it does turn into this national cinema, um, and then eventually turns into national socialist cinema, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately. But but so yeah, and then as you get into the the late teens and the early twenties and even into the thirties in Germany, you also get things begin to expand because Germany does actually become less isolated. Europe becomes less isolated. There's more uh, exchange going on. And, and you get, so you, you get this really interesting process where the Germans who have developed, you know, this own kind of form of expression, uh, begin exporting it. So it begins going to other countries and other countries are beginning to see, see these films. Um, I, I just want to say that a really good sort of overview and analysis of this period in German filmmaking is, uh, it's a very famous book, the book from Caligari to Hitler. Uh, which by Siegfried Krakauer, which I believe is like 1948, so it's just post-war, and uh, and it covers all of this. It covers not just the history of the German film studios and the development of German cinema, but also uh, what Krakauer refers to as as the psychological history of how these films are expressive of the national psychology of Germany. Uh, in this period, which is, in his argument, in his thesis, is, is what eventually leads to what doesn't necessarily explain, but what is the conditions under which Hitler rose to power. Mm-hmm. So, all right, so let's, let's keep on going. So German Expressionism is, it, it is in its most basic form, is um, the expression of the psychological. Uh, one of the external expression of the psychological. So uh, this is directed from Krakauer. It had the function of characterizing the phenomena on screen as a phenomena of the soul. So you're essentially seeing the experience of the characters. Uh, and, a num- and, you know, German expressionism is one of those things that you know it when you see it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> There's a lot of things uh, like that. Yeah, it's the can so you have canted angles ex- and and I don't just mean, you know, slightly tilted camera. I mean like extreme canted angles. Uh lots of light and shadow. Um the use the actual kind of melding of the the physical actor with the rest of the environment. Uh and Conrad Veet was a major expressionist actor. Uh, but like you can literally see in in scenes uh, and in his films of him like actually physically changing himself to meld with the scenery, to become part of this very stark, very strange uh, set pieces and, um, and warped streets and like all of this stuff. The, the other elements of, of expressionism are generally the more psychological ones, uh, an interest in totalitarianism, in authoritarianism, in insanity. Uh, violence and um, and fear and like the the things that kind of and sort of warped sexuality as well. So a lot of uh, films that we refer to as German expressionists are essentially horror films. Um, and the most famous of these is a film that Karen told me that she has seen. <laughs> uh, and in fact, a number of people argue that this is the only true German expressionist film, which I think. <laughs> I think kind of reduce, kind of reduces the argument that expressionism is a movement, which it definitely is, because it's like, well, if there's only one, 
<laughs> you don't have a movement with one movie. <laughs> uh, which is the very famous film, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Um, so, Karen, you recently got to see this, which I I'm did. very excited about because it is one of my favorite films. Um, just in its own right, because I love, obviously, I love this this style. But so, like, what did what did you think of it? Tell us about your impressions of Caligari. So, okay, I have to say that I already knew the the premise of it. So, um, like the big twist surprise ending, I already knew about it. Um, partly because a few years ago, I read some articles about um, Shutter Island that <laughs> uh, made a lot of comparisons. So I kind of, so I already knew what was coming. But um, but sitting down and and actually watching it for the first time and it's uh, on the Criterion Channel by the way, um, but sitting down and and just really watching it and getting to take it all in and 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 experience the movie itself, it was just like, okay, this is now I understand what people are talking about when they talk about German expressionism because. It uses some color, which we know that not all 1920s films were black and white. Um, thanks, Fritzi, for teaching us that. But um, it uses some color. But it like the sets are these very odd angles and these um, really interesting um, designs and things. And it really does. I think it would have been fun to watch it not knowing what was coming. But I think that even knowing where it's going and what's going to happen actually really enhances the experience. At least for me, I feel like it did because of the fact that I really did feel like, wow, okay, I'm inside this person's head and mm-hmm. this is kind of what his experience is. So I thought it was a really, really fun, really creative, interesting uh, story and it's one of those where you see this movie made in 1920 and how it's still influencing films made in 2020 so yeah yeah I I, I so agree I mean I, as I said I love Caligari um, and, and I, I love it I love it not just because it's an interesting study but because it's actually a really good film it like, is yeah it is so creepy it is so like bizarre yeah, and it is like being plunged into this nightmare yeah. Um, and, and it's intended to feel like that. Like, that's what that's what they're trying to do. So even in, like, the normal streets in the town before the horror begins to happen, mm-hmm. you know, you've got streets that, that are impossible to navigate. You've got buildings that are, like, looming over each other. You have all of this this weird... Um, uh, even even the, the actor's makeup and everything, It's it's intended to be extreme. Like, these people are sleeping in these massive gothic beds for some reason. Mm-hmm. You know, it actually, I was, I was like, and I know some people would actually make this comparison backwards um, and say, <laughs> it reminded me of this person that came much later. But watching it, I was like, oh, I can see where Tim Burton was heavily influenced by this. Oh, yeah. Because it felt like, I, I was... I was thinking about movies like Beetlejuice and even a little bit with Edward Scissorhands and and stuff like and some of those movies where I was just like, oh, yeah, I can really see where this comes from. That style of filmmaking is really heavily influenced by it. Yeah. Yeah. That that nightmarish funhouse almost, you know, that funhouse world that everything is a little off kilter, a little askew. Doesn't quite make sense. Doesn't quite fit together. Um, Sometimes a gl- cartoonish. Yeah, there's a gleefulness to it. 
Um, and I, I just want to say to, to anyone who hasn't actually seen uh, Caligari yet, and I'm not, I'm not going to spoil it, although for the most part, I think even descriptions of this film very often <laughs> spoil it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the story of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is um, uh, basically about this young man uh, living in a small German town and the, the carnival comes to town. And uh, one of the exhibits is the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Dr. Caligari, who is this very sinister, creepy looking old man, um, played by, I believe, Werner Krauss, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and, and what he exhibits is a quotation mark somnambulist, uh, which I had to look up the first time I saw this movie. I was just like, what the fuck is a sleepwalker? <laughs> sleepwalker. Yeah. And you're kind of like, wait a minute, he's exhibiting a sleepwalker, but, but the whole, what's actually going on is that he, this, this man is supposed to be hypnotized. Right. And so he's yeah. been in a, a living death, um, uh, the, the entire time. And, and he obeys, uh, Caligari's every, uh, every order. And so that's part of the exhibit. And so this young man, Francis, uh, there's also a subplot involving him and his friend being in love with the same woman. And uh, basically what happens is that murders begin being committed in this small town. And, and the murders start. And, uh, and they happen to coincide with this arrival of Dr. Caligari and his novelist. So that's the basic plot. I don't think that's really revealing anything, except for the fact that the somnambulist, uh, Cesare, is played by Conrad Veet, who many of us best know as Major Strasser in uh, Casablanca. So if you want to see very young Conrad Veet, there you go. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but, Which I didn't realize he was in this, and I'm watching it, and it like he's, his name popped up in the opening credits, and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah, I, I have to say, I first saw this, um, I, I first saw this in, in college, and I did not make the connection between Conrad Veet in Kevin of Dr. Caligari and Conrad Veet in Casablanca, <laughs> and then I, I saw Casablanca again, and I was like, it's the same guy! <laughs> Mind blown! Veet, Veet is awesome, like, he, he is honestly one of the most underrated, uh, I think, sort of heroes of that period of film. Um, but yeah, so, so Caligari is, as you say, an incredibly influential film, both in its own time period and, uh, and also in, um, in our time period. So you can trace the influence of Caligari essentially from its release all the way through to, to today, you're saying Tim Burton. Um, uh, so much of the, so much of what we draw, uh, so, or so much of what we have in, in horror and in thriller and in film noir and everything comes from Caligari originally. Mm-hmm. Um, you can you can like follow it all back, and and it also influenced the continued development of um, uh, of expressionism in Germany. Uh, and so you, so you've got Caligari as kind of the baseline <laughs> of expressionist films, and it, it's it's interesting that you mentioned the 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 spoiler element of it, um, the the frame story, because the original script of Caligari did not include that frame story. Interesting. It was it actually has a different it actually had a different ending, and uh, the director. Um, and now I am blanking on the director's name. 
Um, Robert Vine. There we go. Yeah. So the director, Robert Vine, actually uh, asked for this frame story to be added. And, and it does, you know, it's, it's interesting to consider Caligari really without that frame story. Um, and so like, if, if you read uh, Krakauer's description, you read anything uh, about Caligari and about this, this issue of the framing narrative, um, it, it changes the film in a really interesting way. Because there is almost an explanation for why you have all these canted angles and weird lighting and strange characters and all of that stuff. And then, uh, because as soon as you, you get to the end, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you remove that frame story, I think it'd be kind of interesting to consider what you're left with. So right. I, what do you think about that? Um, yeah, it, it definitely, well, I think if you take that out, then it, it is more like, um, again, I'm saying this backwards, but then it is more like what we know of Tim Burton films, because those are just weird for the sake of being weird. They're, they're off kilter. They're, uh, they're odd and again, cartoonish and there's, not a reason for it. It's just a style. So I think if you take out that, um, that story for Caligari, then that's what you are left with. And it doesn't make it a bad movie. It just makes it a much different one. It's a, yeah, it's a very different one. It's, it's a lot less comforting, I think, because there, there is an explanation I think that you can, you can draw from, and there are a couple of different ways you can interpret the ending. Um, Mm -hmm. But there is there is kind of a, a comfortable explanation that you can draw from the ending. If you don't have that, it's not quite so comfortable because it, it is like this nightmare essentially, and it would then it would it's a nightmare that you never particularly escape from. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yes. Yeah, so so Caligari is generally considered to be uh, the first German expressionist film. Um, however, there is there are a couple of earlier films. Uh, because there's always earlier films. <laughs> Whenever mm-hmm. anything is like, oh, this was the first, it's like, but what about this? <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so some of the same elements, the elements that would develop into expressionism are also present in a film called uh, The Student of Prague, which was directed by Arthur Robeson, I think. No, Stalin Rye, I'm sorry. Uh, Selen Ryan stars Paul Wegner, who is um, uh, a, just a major film actor during this period. And that film is actually 1913. But this, so The Student of Prague actually deals with doppelgangers, uh, essentially. It's, and it's very similar to Caligari in kind of a weird way. A little old man is traveling through Prague and comes upon this young man who's very, uh, who's kind of bored and dissolute and, and everything. And, and he, he makes he makes him an offer and he makes him the kind of offer that, you know, in fairy tales, never, ever take this sort of offer. So <laughs> they're sitting in a room and he says, I will, the, the old man says, I will give you like a hundred thousand gold coins. Um, that seems legit in, in exchange for anything I want in this room. And they're sitting in the students rooms in, in college. Right. And, and of course it's just like, well, of course, you know, of course I'm going to do this, you know, all right, we'll sign this contract <laughs> and we can see where this is going. What could go uh, wrong? And, and what the little old man actually takes is the student's reflection from the mirror. Oh. And it's honestly, it's, it's great 
special effects. And it is particularly great considering that this film was made in 1913, <laughs> um, because you actually have the student standing there and his, and you see his reflection in the mirror and then the reflection steps out of the mirror. And it's, it's a great effect and it is very, very well done. And I know that there are like simple explanations for it, but it's like, wow, this, this looks very seamless. Um, so, and essentially what happens is that this doppelganger, this reflect, this reflection of the student begins running amok and doing horrible things and killing people. So there's, there's a lot of similar, um, similarities, obviously to Caligari. And so, uh, student of Prague is generally considered to be one of the very first art films. So a film that was deliberately trying to be artistic and to use cinema in an, in an artistic way. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's, it's interesting being being this German film, that the the first point of departure was horror, because this is based originally on on a poem and also by on a story by Edgar Allan Poe. Hmm. So it's it's a fascinating film. It is one of those where they're obviously very um, limited by the the capabilities of the camera. So you can do a lot of interesting things in terms of special effects, but there are almost no close ups. It's almost entirely like full body shots of characters, mm -hmm. uh, which means, and stuff. yeah, which means that it can get a little boring and it can get a little repetitive. And there's, there's a lot of, it's after a while, I just kind of like, okay, yeah, we get it. Can we get on with it now? <laughs> but, but it's a great film. But so you're talking about this and it's 1913, right? So yeah. we're already kind of seeing the foundations of something like expressionism. Um, as you move into uh, into the 1930s or the 1920s uh, and the 1930s, you begin to get all of these different directors. So Fritz Lang is a uh, you know major German expressionist director. Um, F. W. Murnau, Vine, uh, the cinematographer Carl Friend, who I want to talk about in a minute. Um, but then there become there's this open question of are these films expressionist? Or are these films, do these films only have expressionist elements? And what is the difference? So is there a very, are we talking about a very narrow definition of expressionism that Caligari accomplishes? Or are we talking about um, a much broader one of all of these different uses of the camera, uses of the image, focalization through various characters uh, and stuff like that? So what like German expressionist films have you seen, Karen, or that you would classify like this? Um, I mean, Metropolis, which yeah. I, I know that that one is, is one like you're talking about that, um, has elements, but then other, like it's got some differences too. So, um, is it fully an expressionist film? I would say it is, but other people disagree with that. Um, uh, what else have I seen? I've seen like, a few Fritz Lang films like, um, mm hmm M is really interesting because M is, is quite late when you're talking about expressionism, but so much of it is exactly that. So, you know, the, the, uh, the psychology of the killer, mm -hmm. the interest in, you know, the, that terrifying, those terrifying opening scenes where you just see his shadow and hear him whistling and things like that. Yeah. Uh, I actually, in, in one of the classes that I took in college, uh, that for some reason, they didn't show us Caligari, but they did show us M. What? Yeah, even though they kept on telling us, just like, well, this is this has expressionist elements. And we're like, so why aren't we watching Caligari? Right. <laughs> That's so weird. 
I think that there is this this feeling among the professors that maybe they thought a bunch of undergrads would be bored by a silent film. Because they actually, like, I saw Caligari because I was like, I'm going to go find this film because I actually want to see it. Mm -hmm. So they had a copy of it. It just, they were just like, oh, we're going to show you M, which is a great film. Like, it's it's one of my favorite Fritz Lang films, but it's not, I mean, if, you, if you're going to say, well, this isn't really expressionist. Right. Yeah. So let's just pause there for a second and talk about this, because um, I think that there's this tendency, um, my nephew. It's his birthday today. He's 15. Um, he, for a while, he didn't like to watch older stuff. Like, a lot of kids don't. A lot of people much older than him don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but my brother just was really persistent and just was like, oh, no, you, I want you to see these films because how do you understand what's coming out now if you don't know where it came from? Like what we have been talking about on this podcast for years. And um, so now... My nephew, at 15 years old, he loves watching stuff that's older. Um, And by that, I do mean, like, 90s and 80s, because he was born in 2005. But he also (laughs) has seen stuff from, like, the 60s and the 50s, too. And I think that when I hear stories about what you're talking about, well, it just, they didn't know that you would really be able to appreciate it. It's like, I I get frustrated by that, because I feel like, you know, the, the... the tendency now is just to remake everything like, uh, don't make kids watch that old original movie. Let's remake it now for their generation. And some of those movies actually turn out to be pretty good. I think Aladdin was not bad. The live action version. Mm -hmm. Um, but still it's like, if you don't expose people to that stuff, if you don't encourage them to watch it, then how are they ever going to gain an appreciation for it? Sorry. That's just my little, (laughs) No, I I mean, obviously, I agree with you. And I, and I yeah. think that that was what was so weird. It was even weird to me at the time. Um, mm-hmm. Me and, and my friend, Nina, we were in the same class. And, and we were literally like, let's go find Caligari, because why haven't yeah. we seen Caligari? And, and they showed us clips of the film, right? But, and they were like, okay, this is what, and we were like, awesome, that looks really cool. I want to see that, you know? Um, but seeing clips of it is not the same, like, like what we were talking yeah, about no. when we were talking about when I was explaining my experience with the movie. It's like I knew what it was about, but it wasn't until I sat down. I know you know this. I'm not preaching to you, but um, but it's like and not until I sat down and actually watched it start to finish and could contextualize it that I was just like, oh, wow. Yeah, this is actually a really cool movie. And yeah. I just I don't know why we keep shortchanging young people and not giving them encouragement in experiencing these things for themselves yeah and i and it does kind of create this this feeling that okay these this this sense that these films are inaccessible Mm -hmm. right well they're not important enough like the ideas of them are but the film itself isn't and that's so wrong yeah exactly and i I think caligari is a perfect example of that is that it's it's it is a good horror film Mm -hmm. like it just is it's very very important in the history of film um but one of the reasons why it's so important and one of the reasons why it was so popular is because it's a good film. Like it actually does a really great job exactly. uh, at what it's trying to do. And, and you also think about it, some of it. And I, I do think that this argument, you know, there's only this is the only true expressionist film is is interesting because it really is like nothing you've ever seen. 
Um, it has, you can see its influences in so many different places, but the film itself is very unique. Mm-hmm. And, and I really like that about it. I like that there, uh, I remember having a conversation about a different film, uh, and one of my friends said, you know, it's one of those tricks that you can't pull off twice. Yeah. And, but it's a really good trick. When you can, even though you can only do it that once, and and I feel that like Caligari is is that it pull they pull off the trick really really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and so so yeah, of course, as always, people please go and watch these movies. Um, and and seriously, go and watch M. M is a great film. So good. Uh, I'm I'm wondering if it's like. I'm going to look because I want to see if it's on Just Watch or anything. Like, because the student yeah. of Prague, um, you cannot get that anywhere. I just looked it up. Stu- student of Prague is on YouTube. I think you can get it on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, there are two versions that are on. It, a lot of these films are in the public domain, mm. um, which is both good and bad, because on the one side, you can probably find them. On the other side, they might not be great prints. Right. Uh, or great versions. So one of the problems with the student uh, with the student of Prague is that there are two versions on YouTube. One of them is very high quality, and one of them is much lower quality. But only the one in lower quality has English subtitles. Oh, good. So, <laughs> so if you're going to watch the film for the first time and you want to know what is being said in the title cards, you kind of have to watch the the less the lesser version. <laughs> Right, and then go back and watch the other one. Yeah. Um, M is available on the Criterion Channel, Canopy, and HBO Max. Not surprising. It, it is one of, uh, I think that and Metropolis are two of Lang's yeah. best known films. One, yeah. At least, in, at least from his German period. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so you, so you got Metropolis, you got M. One of the other big ones, two of the other big ones, is Nosferatu. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen that one. I was going to say, I think that you have seen Nosferatu. <laughs> I've seen Nosferatu. The original Dracula film, so originally the Wait. Dracula film. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking stuff up about that as I was researching for today, and I was like, uh-huh. wait a minute, I didn't know any of this stuff. <laughs> uh, so original a Dracula film that Bram Stoker's widow actually tried to have all prints of it destroyed. <laughs> Because she said that it violated copyright. She successfully sued, and yeah, they were supposed to destroy all the prints, but oops, there were too many of them mm-hmm. to destroy them all. So yeah, so Bram Stoker's widow almost like destroyed again one of the the original really vampire movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so so Nos- Nosferatu uh, is directed by F. W. Murnau, and uh, and and it is it is basically the story of Dracula with with a few changes. Um, but it is actually the names are different, but it is actually intended to be a direct adaptation of Dracula. Yeah. He just couldn't get the rights to Dracula, so he couldn't yeah. technically make Dracula, even though he did. <laughs> so he just changed the names and kind of switched some plot points around a little bit and like. Smush things together, but so so Murnau Which is what is, they do when they adapt stuff now, anyway. So they exactly, go. yeah. So so Murnau is is a major expressionist director, usually classified that way. Uh, the other one of his films that I think one of his more famous works is The Last Laugh, uh, which is a very different kind of film. And it's interesting, you know, a number of the films that we've talked about so far are 
deal with the supernatural or deal with insanity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and also the kind of overlapping of those two things, you know, is this person crazy or are they actually seeing ghosts? Uh, is there a real vampire or is this just a projection of, you know, your, the, the terror of the characters? And so there's a lot of overlap and you get that particularly in, um, in things like Student of Prague or Caligari or M, uh, stuff like that. So that, that sort of filtered through is like, where, where does reality end and fiction begin kind of thing? Uh, the Last Laugh is interesting because it does have a lot of expression expressionist elements in that it uses these kind of canted angles. It uses a lot of POV shots, um, a lot of focalization through the major character. Um, but the story is, is actually fairly more mundane in a certain sense. And it's also, it's this mundanity of the, um, of the characters that make it, interesting because it's sort of expressing this psychology of fairly normal people. Uh, the, so the story is about a, um, a doorman at a, a very posh hotel who is very proud of being a doorman. He's proud of wearing the uniform and the uniform kind of con- confers on him this uh, respect in his local community and, and in the tenement where he lives. So even though he is, you know, constantly just opening the door and carrying suitcases for all of these rich people, he has this pride of place. And what happens is that one of the uh, one of the hotel managers notices that he's getting older and that he is having difficulty carrying um, a trunk on his back. And so out of the goodness of his humanity, actually, the manager is actually trying to do a good thing. Um uh, in, rather than firing him, switches him, takes him off of being a doorman and puts him as a men's lavatory attendant. And this completely decimates his self-respect. And so the rest of the film is, is about this kind of contrast between the, 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 um, the power that the uniform gave him, the sort of respect that the uniform gave him, and the loss of that and the loss of face that he experiences in... Be, in being turned in being turned into you know a men's lavatory attempt. So it's really it's interesting to see expressionism being employed in a film like that, which is a simple narrative. It's not terribly complex, but it is it does get you into the psychology of this um, fairly normal you know unremarkable person, apparently unremarkable person, and it really makes you feel for him, makes you experience. Uh, uh, his suffering and, you know, the, the difficulties and also the problems of class and, and things like that in, in Germany in the 1920s. Yeah. <clears throat> I've not seen that one either. It is, it is a great film. It's another one of those films that does have an interesting frame narrative, uh, which again, I'm not going to spoil, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a really, really interesting film. And um, Murnau uh, was was a major proponent of uh, what's usually referred to as pure cinema, which is trying to essentially trying to make movies without uh, dialogue. So you which is very easy to do, obviously, in the silent era. But if you actually watch The Last Laugh, I think there is one title card in the entirety of The Last Laugh. Oh. Uh, so you don't actually have the characters speaking to each other. Um, you don't have any interpretations. You know, a lot of silent films, uh, if, you know, if you watch any silent films, a lot of them have these title cards, you know, explaining what is happening. Right. 
Um, this ha ha doesn't have any of that. So, uh, it, and Murnau's goal, like he, this was a deliberate thing. He wanted to make a film that had no title cards, that all of the, the entire story was told by the camera. Um, and again, and the expressionism really does relate to that because it is this, the psychology. It's about the experience. It's not so much about, you know, the reality of what is being said or being done. Yeah. So, all right, let's see. What else? I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot. No, it's okay. I was just was thinking about how we see that a lot um, done effectively, even with films now, as far as the silent without title cards and things. We see that in short films. But uh, to do that for the course of an entire feature, that's it actually is much trickier to keep the audience engaged. So. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because Hitchcock was a, a big proponent of this, this idea of pure cinema mm -hmm. and, um, and the idea of not using dialogue. Ba basically, his attitude was, you know, you don't want the character, you don't want the characters providing exposition, right? Right. You don't need the characters standing there explaining why they're doing something. Mm -hmm. um, the ca if the camera doesn't tell the story, then why is it a film? You know, why isn't it just a book? Uh, and it's, it's well at the end of Psycho. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, and so there, you know, once again, my yeah. favorite pet thing with Psycho. I'm not going to do that. I will not go into that right now. But no. yes, think about that, listeners. Think about the psychiatrist's speech at the end of Psycho and the fact that Hitchcock did not like characters giving exposition. Mm. Just think about it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, but, but yeah, but so many films do actually rely on characters giving exposition. Just like here's what we're going to do, and and it, it is people talking to each other, and usually it's filmed well, right? Um, but it's interesting to to look at the directors who do move more towards this idea of pure cinema. Of you know, I'm going to show you, right. I'm going to show you the backstory, I'm going to show you what happened. So that you understand what's happening without having a character step in and be like, and now I will explain this plot point. My, it's, it's like the villain giving the speech, just like, I yeah. suppose you're wondering how I got away with it. You know? <laughs> exactly. That's one of the things that drives me nuts in film is when they spend more time telling you than showing you. And yeah. I know that's a big thing, like in all of my just fiction literature writing classes when I was younger was show don't tell but in film that's especially true because the the whole point of film is about showing it's about visualization and if you have to rely on explaining things then it really does derail your narrative in most cases sometimes it's necessary to do it a little bit but um if you can't figure out a way to to tell your story visually then you need to rethink it or scrap it and try something else yeah absolutely no that's it's it's true it's so true and and it's amazing how many films still rely on what essentially like you're saying you you are actually told not to do in literature <laughs> yeah well especially considering the fact that the beginning of film came from uh, yeah they used title cards but so much of it was just what you saw. And so the birth of film came from being able to accomplish that. And 
it's like in some ways filmmakers have kind of gone backwards and like, oh, well, now we can explain it. So instead of being creative about not explaining it, we're just going to take the easy route. Yeah. And, and again, and going back to, to my my pet, uh, my pet director, <laughs> uh, <laughs> hit one, of, one of Hitchcock's major maxims was essentially like best films are silent films. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the interesting things, uh, you know, in terms of, of this this issue of, of uh, German films then being exported. So a lot of these films that we're now talking about actually were seen in America and in France, etc. But if you think about it, if you've got a film uh, made in Germany that has no title cards, there's no need for translation. Right. Uh, you know, there might maybe for some of the signs, if a sign is really important, but very often it's not, right? So you can, you can take the last laugh and send it to any place in the world, basically, and have people watch it, and they should be able to understand what is happening, even though this is a completely foreign film. So uh, it, it's it's it is this democratization almost uh, of cinema. It becomes a a total mass art form because you can look at it and watch it and experience it in ways that you can't with theater, uh, in ways that you can't with literature. Mm-hmm. Um, the only clo- the closest you can come is a painting, but obviously painting is static. Uh, but it's it's this so it's this mass form that without the need for dialogue, anyone can experience it and have the same experience. Right. And I really like that about silent film. Yes, I good agree. silent film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but even the ones that aren't as good. <laughs> yes. Well, and actually, you know, even a lot of the time, Chaplin and uh, Keaton's early stuff is very much like it's all sight gags. There are very few. Um, there sometimes uh, they make like little puns in the title cards, but mm-hmm. for the most part, like it, if they use title cards, it's essentially to be like, "This is the girl." Right. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. in love with the girl. That kind very, of very very basic because yeah. so much of the story is just visual. It's on screen. You don't need the title cards to understand what's happening. Exactly. So, uh, all right. So, so let's let's keep on going. So, we're talking about um, uh, the influence that these films have had, both within their own time period and and outside of it. Um, I think that you can see pretty immediately some of the effects uh, that expressionism had on other world cinemas, and some of this is a result of the the, pre- the peculiar history of Germany. Um, but some of it is also just about the general movement. So you get expressionism in the 1920s and then moving into the 1930s. And you get a, a famous cinematographer who is an expressionist cinematographer uh, and worked on, um, uh, I believe he worked on Caligari. I am not crazy. Maybe I am. I don't no, know. He, he worked, worked on, on Metropolis. He worked on Metropolis, he worked on um, uh, The Golem, which is another major uh, expressionist film. He did not work on Caligari, I lied. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Liar! Uh, he also worked on Variety, etc. But this is Carl Freund, who, uh, or Front, who goes to Hollywood in the 1930s and is the cinematographer on Todd Browning's Dracula. So you've got a very, and, and then later uh, murders in the Rue Morgue. So you've got this connection that is running through from German Expressionism to the foundations of horror films uh, in the United States. 
and then eventually into, as we're saying, this this more expansiveness uh, of of this of the influence of expressionism. Mm-hmm. And so, so Germany actually produces a lot of these artists. I mean, a number of the directors that we're talking about, Lang, um, uh, Lang in particular, but also uh, Douglas Sirk and Billy Wilder, a number of these guys went from uh, Germany to the United States eventually and brought many of the same concerns and sensibilities, et cetera, to Hollywood filmmaking. And Lang in particular is, is a perfect example of this, that he, if you watch any of Lang's American films, you see German expressionism. That's what you're watching. You, you know, you can follow that path really, really easily. And the dude is making Technicolor Westerns sometimes, mm-hmm. which I always find very funny. Uh, <laughs> But so, so you get all of these influences. So um, I don't know. So Karen, like, what do you what do you think about this? I've been doing a lot of talking, and I know that <laughs> I know that I know some of this stuff, but I also don't want to completely monopolize the conversation. Oh, I don't um, feel like you're monopolizing the conversation. I feel like you're teaching me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. But so, so like, uh, we talked about Tim Burton. Like, are there? Do you think that there are other um, directors, etc., that show this influence or even other types of films oh yeah i mean like i had mentioned earlier shutter island so i think Mm -hmm. that and i think martin scorsese has always been very much a proponent and an advocate for uh older films for um uh, film preservation Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of thing so it makes sense that that you would see influences from the silent era in some of his work. Um, I think I'm trying to think of, of some others. Um, uh, I mean, I think is not even looking at today, but looking at people like Hitchcock who did go to Germany and were studying film at the time and then brought what they learned into their own work and then later influenced other people like Shyamalan, like, Spielberg, like, you know, even some of those guys. Um, and then, of course, into the independent filmmakers, too. So I think that this is um, this is a perfect example of another thing that we talk about a lot, which is why we study old films so that you can understand the things that influence the people that are making the movies that we love today. So when you see a movie like, um, uh, what am I thinking of? Like, I just watched Radioactive this week, um, which is directed by Marjan Satrapi. And um, I'm probably saying her last name wrong. But um, but you can see things in there that were clearly influenced by other earlier films, not necessarily expressionist films. But, you know, like, so I just as far as as what i can think of that's ex- that's directly impacted by expressionism i think in some ways most films are even if very indirectly yeah no i i i definitely agree with you i mean i think that particularly genre films um so if you're talking about thrillers the the concept of the psychological thriller yeah really basically started with german expressionism and you know it's kind of like would it have developed without it? Yeah, probably. But there, the way that we, um, the 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 use of focalization and and yeah. focalization, by the way, and I I don't know if it 
people necessarily um, know this term. I did not know this term for a long time. Uh, is is essentially not really point of view shots, so not not necessarily take directly taking the character's perspective, um, but is telling the story through the viewpoint of a particular character. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's similar to in, in literary theories uh, when we talk about close third perspective. So the character is a character that you see, that the viewer sees, but a lot of the story is actually being told through their concepts uh, and their perspective and their psychology. Hence, something like Caligari, which is being told directly through the narrative of Francis. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but so, so, and, and that's, that's what most psychological thrillers do. Mm-hmm. You and it sometimes it's via the killer's perspective. Sometimes it's through um, a couple of different perspectives, the victim's perspective. Uh, it, it kind of influences audience uh, sympathy. It it alters the way that we understand what's happening, and it can also fuck with you because you suddenly realize that like. You, you could get an unreliable narrator. You suddenly realize that half of the film is essentially being told by a crazy person or by someone who may be the murderer. Exactly. Yeah. Or that what you think is happening on screen is not actually what's happening on screen, which yeah. it's funny when you see one movie like that and then you just are able to easily pick it out in every other movie. Like, yeah. um, like, I remember seeing The Others with Nicole Kidman, which I don't know. I'm still mad that they're remaking that already. It's 20 years old. But um, but I yeah. remember seeing that. And then, um, but because of The Sixth Sense, I was like, I wonder if this is what's going on, you know? And so then, but then there was another movie I'm trying to think of that, like, I was easily able to pick out oh, okay, this isn't really happening. This is in this guy's head or whatever because of other movies I had seen. So it's it's uh, it's interesting how that can happen, especially like when movies try to emulate something else. Like, what was I watching yeah. recently? That was basically, it was, it was an homage to Psycho and some other movies. It wasn't like a remake or anything, but it was like trying to homage some of these big films. And I was just like, why would you do it this way? I know exactly what you're doing and I know exactly where you're going with this. And like, there's no surprise. And then, of course, people are like, oh, wow, I never saw that coming. I'm like, that's because you didn't watch old movies. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, but I'm thinking too, just like as you're talking about vocalization, but also um, elements just of, of the cinematography work too and production design and things like that, where um, like when a character is having sort of like a mental breakdown or some kind of really intense psychological experience, or they're just under duress and you can see kind of these angles stretch out or they're being shot from like up above and to the right or something. And like, it's kind of this weird overhead shot where it's very off kilter and, and, um, kind of makes you feel a little discombobulated or um, even even some of the production and, and costume design elements that are kind of gothic in nature are yeah. part of this expressionist uh, influence too. Um, yeah. Movies like uh, Crimson Peak come to mind. Oh yeah, no, incredibly. I, I, again, you know, talk about psychological thrillers, history of horror. Um, the history of horror, at least Western horror, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and there, and then of course you get new influences that then kind of get melded together. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, 
Western horror is, again, heavily influenced. And to, to a degree that can be shocking. I mean, sometime watch, you know, Cabrera Baki Caligari and the 1931 Frankenstein back to back. Mm-hmm. And the the perform like just the performance, Veet's performance as Cesare and uh, Karloff's performance as the Frankenstein monster, you can see the influence. Like there is the the and also not just that, but the expressionism, the way that the character fits into the rest of the scenery. Mm-hmm. Um, and and is this you know it's almost as though the monster is you know being born out of this Gothic castle not really being created by this, you know, uh, kind of this dude standing off to the side, this hyper-modern character. Right. Um, Yeah, speaking about psychological throws, I always, one of my favorite techniques, and I love noticing it, and I like also warning people about it, is that (laughs) as soon as you have a character telling a story, and then the camera cuts to whatever their story is, that's when you are just like, all right, we need to take all of this with a grain of salt because this might be a complete lie. Yeah. You're just yeah. like, here's here is what happened. It's like, I don't believe that. <laughs> right. Like, we don't. Yeah. Why are we trusting you? We should. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's always so it's always a good idea also to notice where the story begins and where it ends. Like, mm-hmm. at what point do we step out of that character's point of view? Yeah. Um, same thing with like when a character goes to sleep, and, and it's one of the more annoying. Uh, techniques used, but when a character goes to sleep and you don't see them waking up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, immediately... Assume that you, they didn't. <laughs> yeah, immediately, like, warning bells should be going off, just like, it might be a dream! <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's funny, because sometimes I get really annoyed when it turns out that they weren't dreaming, and I'm like, then why didn't you show them waking up? <laughs> <laughs> yes, always show them waking up. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So, so yeah, so even within um, within the same time period, you know, you're talking about Lang coming to America, Todd Browning's Dracula was photographed by Carl Friend. A lot of those early horror films were photographed by him, actually. Um, James Whale's Frankenstein, uh, Jacques Turner slash Val Luton, who's the producer uh, of the original Cat People, um, Hitchcock's films, and then, like you say, you get this trajectory coming out of that that a lot of a lot of these guys then influence directors and cinematographers and the, the form of, of storytelling. Um, yeah. So, so many of the things that we admire in, as we're saying, and particularly in psychological thrillers or in horror films, and sometimes in dramas uh, as well, come in some way from German expressionism. So, yeah, I, I think that the continuous refrain of this podcast, beyond Why Are Men?, uh is you know watch those early films because it's and and i don't think it it doesn't you know it's not saying that these films that the films that take influence from these are bad or in any sense like they're or they're lazy sometimes they're lazy because they're employing tropes that have been used you know since 1920 right uh but it's all i always find it very interesting to see where those things come from and yeah and and how they express how they express, uh, you know, the experience of the film itself and, and also, you know, in a broader sense, and this is what Krakauer talks about um, in his book, uh, a broader sense of, of the, the zeitgeist, the where the society or the culture is at and why these particular kinds of films are being made at this particular time. Yeah. Um, 
I find it very interesting that in recent years we have had a major resurgence of horror, mm -hmm. uh, given everything that is going on in the United States and uh, and all the experiences. We we are looking more and more like Weimar Germany, and it kind of bothers me. <laughs> yeah, in in a lot of different ways, uh, in what's happening politically, in our art. Um, it's it's really interesting to look at it from that perspective. I think that um, this is this is one of the reasons why we're constantly, you know, urged, and why you and I are constantly urging people like learn history, understand it, because you have to be able to um, contextualize the world that you live in. And just I think that one of the things too, just backing up to what you were talking about a minute ago, as far as the influences and stuff, I think that one of the reasons, like for me, um, when I watch a film and I'm like, oh yeah, that's good. And then I watch something that influenced it. It really makes my enjoyment of the other film deeper and it helps me to understand it in a different way. It helps me to understand some of the choices that a filmmaker made when I understand um, not just from knowing like from reading about it or whatever, but from actually experiencing those films and being able to really see for myself in what ways that they were influenced or that they used um, elements or even sometimes just like full on dialogue or whatever. It makes it a lot, uh, a lot easier, you know, and yeah. this is not expressionism, but I think of a movie like Scream where, this this is just as an example or like as a um uh, what's the word I don't know analogy but I think of the movie Scream where that's a really fun horror movie just on its own but it's so much better if you've seen Prom Night and Friday the Thirteenth and Halloween and The Exorcist and all these other movies that not only are referenced by it but it was influenced by so it's it. I think of that in any film when you're watching it, if you can understand the director's motivations and the director's own education and influences, then it just makes the experience that much richer and deeper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Uh, and yeah. And, and I think that it's, yeah, like you're saying, I think that it, it deepens the experience. Um, mm -hmm. There, there are a few people that I think, kind of avoid studying these things a little bit more in depth or, or you, and by studying, I literally mean watching the movies. Right. <laughs> um, more in depth because they're afraid that it's going to spoil things in some way that it's like, well, I don't, you know, I, I don't know. Well, I don't really want to know where these influences are coming from because I just because want to it experience. Makes them feel it. like their person isn't original after yeah. all or Yeah. And, and sometimes there's a lack of originality. Uh, sometimes I get the impression that Tarantino. <laughs> well, and Tarantino is a good example because we all know that Tarantino uses pastiche. Like yeah. that—that's—that's that's what he founded his his career on, essentially. But it's really weird, you know, if you go back and watch some of the films that it that explicitly influenced Kill Bill. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I remember going back and watching some of those ones, like Lady Snowblood and. Um, uh, the Bride Wore Black and, and stuff like that. And these are films that he has said influenced Kill Bill. Right. Right. And and then you go back and, and watch them and just like, oh, well, this is this is a much better film. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it definitely, if you're going to steal, steal from the best, but also be certain that you're using them in a way that is different because yeah. otherwise it's just going to be stealing. It's like, this isn't, this doesn't really do much, does it? Yeah. There's homage and then there's just copying. Yeah. And, and I think that Scream is a great example of, of homage. And of course it's being made by one of the, masters of horror so it makes sense right Um, he knew exactly what he was doing because he made those films uh but but yeah where where it's deliberate meta it's deliberate homage and pastiche but it also like you're saying it you can watch that film and enjoy it for what it is without really knowing all of the references it's mm-hmm. deepened by knowing the references, but it, it's, I, I think that that's, that's really the distinction. It's, there's some films that are deepened by being aware of those references and knowing what the filmmaker is up to and other films that are, are just incredibly superficial. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, I mean, I personally put Tarantino in this category other than a there are a couple of his films that I think have, have more to say than um, than others, but the, that a lot of it really is just kind of a cobbling together of influences mm-hmm. and not really original pastiche, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. That sounds kind yeah. of weird. <laughs> I, no, I, I agree with what you're saying, though. I think that the problem with Tarantino is that he, um, he real, it's not that he doesn't understand what he's talking about or or what he's using as references but he i feel like in a lot of ways he counts on his audience not to know <laughs> and so he yeah. uses it to make himself look um really smart and clever and it it just it it comes off to me it comes across as very disingenuous in a lot of ways but it's yeah. weird because he also does a lot to try to preserve film history too. So it's, I don't really understand his deal, but I do feel when I'm watching his movies that it's, there's not enough um, uh, respect isn't the right word, but it just, there's not enough to differentiate like that. This is him taking influence versus him just straight up copying. Yeah. And when you copy something, it usually ends up being a diminished um uh version of it yeah yeah there's the sense that there's there's no real project underneath all of it yeah and and i mean and we're not going to get into talking about postmodernism here but that's that's kind of what he's doing is this it's this postmodern pastiche right but the whole point is that when you're doing something like that there's a point to it mm-hmm. right you're you're so you're bringing all these different influences together and and kind of cutting and pasting, right? But you're doing it with an intent. Yes. And, and the intent, and I'm sorry, guys, but the intent cannot simply be, it sounds cool. Mm. Like, that, yes, that can be fun sometimes, but that's not really particularly interesting. And, and I feel like a lot of Tarantino's work is exactly that. It's, he does it because it looks cool, and there's nothing really else going on underneath it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's surface level. It's, there's nothing... Yeah deeper it's very superficial mm-hmm. so i think that that is i mean we've talked a lot about a lot of different things uh i think that that is probably going to wrap us up about german expressionism but did you have any final thoughts on german expressionism karen that you want to share um it's super fun 
and cool and watch movies on Criterion, on Canopy, on Hoopla, on YouTube, wherever you can. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Watch the movies that influence the movies that you love, which we talk about a lot. But in this case, it's specifically movies like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, so many of these films that we're talking about are are available are public domain films. So you you wouldn't mm-hmm. you don't even have to have uh, a, a a subscription to anything in order to right. watch them. And then some you can you know always. I mean, I always think that you should try to watch the best quality versions that you can possibly get. Yes. But some people can't afford that. Some people can't do it. But so like so many of these films, particularly the silent ones are just there, like go on to YouTube and they're sitting there and you can watch them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're interesting and intriguing and, and well-made films and everything. Uh, so please, please watch them. So that is going to wrap us up. Uh, thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this discussion of German Expressionism, which I'm very excited about because I like talking about this stuff. Um, and this is one of the reasons I love talking about these topics is because, I mean, I tell I tell people watch older movies, but it's also I'm telling myself that and this gives mm-hmm. me kind of a way to focus what I'm going to watch and when I'm going to watch it. So like for me this week, like I said, I couldn't do an episode on German expressionism without having seen Caligari, Caligari. Yeah. So I was like, OK, I have to watch it this week. I knew I needed to watch it this week. And so it gave me I mean. Not that I needed a reason, but it gave me like kind of a deadline of like, this is this is when you need to watch it. But it also gave me the opportunity because I was watching it while I'm also studying other things. So I'm also properly contextualizing what I'm seeing at the same time. Yeah. And like I've been sitting around reading um, from Calgary to Hitler and I and I have read pieces of it before um, when I've done work on this, but I've never actually read the book cover to cover. And it's very interesting, first of all, to reread what I've read before and to read the other things as well. Um, and, and this is not just a book about German expressionism, but it, it deals with that in depth because that's a lot of what's going on in, in the time period. Um but I really do, I do encourage uh, people, you know, you don't necessarily have to read the entire book, but read the introduction, because the introduction creates a very good framework uh, for what Krakauer is talking about. And then the rest of the book goes into detail, obviously, but it's a very good sort of shortish essay. And seriously, you will be terrified of how close <laughs> contemporary America seems to Weimar Germany. <laughs> it's a little troubling in places, uh, but it's really interesting, and I think it's actually important for that. Um, My library does not have that book. I'm very upset, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, I bet I bet that you could at least find the introduction um, as a PDF online. I'm certain that it's Probably. somewhere. I, I think that the whole book might actually be available. I have I have a paperback copy of it, but the whole book might be available online. So again, it's 1948, so it's not a, a terribly recent publication. Right. And and again, I don't think Krakauer is right about everything, and some of his analysis I I don't agree with at all. But it's interesting. It's particularly interesting given that he's writing from such a close perspective. That's the thing. And like, he didn't have time. He didn't have the benefit of decades of time in between to look at the fallout and the analysis and things. This is writing from a time when this is all the very recent past. Yeah, it's very, very contemporary. So it, it is a fascinating book. Like, And, and it's pretty well written, too. It's not um, it's not overly academic. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a very accessible book. So, cool. again, 
Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And as always, we send out a special thank you to our patrons who are being lovely and contributing to us and, and uh, keeping the lights on and everything. So thank you to Heather, Adriana, Cricket Table Podcast, Michael, Jacob, James, Katie, Cariata, Mason, Matthew, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Nicole, Robert, Sharon, Steve, Tao, and Will. Uh, Thank you so much, everybody. And, and if you do want to contribute to our uh, Patreon, we would love it. If if not, we understand. Guess we're not special. No, <laughs> uh, we completely understand. Of course, uh, it just it's very very helpful to us. Um, and and it's it's nice it's nice to know that that people really value this podcast and because we have fun doing it and we hope you have fun listening to it. Uh, so if you want to contribute to our Patreon, we are on patreon.com slash citizen dame. If you want to buy some stuff from our Zazzle store, including masks, we have our, our Zazzle store is at zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod. Um, you can give us some money, just a couple of bucks if you want to at ko-fi. That's ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. You don't have to subscribe or anything. It's just, just saying that you've enjoyed our episodes. Uh, if, if you feel like giving us some dollars, um, we are, of course, always accessible online. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Citizen Dane Pod. We are still on Facebook, facebook.com slash Citizen Dane. I think we're the only people that are still on Facebook. <laughs> uh, you can also send us your questions, comments, queries, praise, love, adoration uh, at citizendamepod at gmail.com. And, of course, our website, citizendamepod.com, where there are reviews and... DVD reviews, Blu-ray reviews, essays, me ranting about stuff. <laughs> uh, it's fun. And so forth. <laughs> and that is uh, citizendamepod.com. And, of course, you can reach out to us individually. Karen, where are you? I am on Twitter and Instagram at Karen M. Peterson. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod, and you can also follow the adventures of my new doggy. You're actually is... at Elite's business. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm tired. I have to say, the past three days I have not slept. So I apologize. I am at LH Business on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> Uh, that is also where my dog is. I mean, she might wind up on the, the uh, Citizen Day Pod Twitter and Instagram, but for right now, that's where she is. Also <laughs> acceptable. Also <laughs> All right. So with that, I'm going to go take a nap. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. We hope that you tune in next, next time we come on. Talk to you later. Bye. All right, Mr. Burns. You win, but be there. We Germans aren't all smiles and sunshine. Ooh, the Germans are mad at me. I'm so scared. Ooh, the Germans!